with gratitude for the generous support of the Josephine uh, Barry Weiss Chair in the Humanities Endowment. I'm pleased to welcome all of you to the second of two events featuring best-selling novelist David Liss. Here we go. Uh, working. Good. David's debut novel, Conspiracy of Paper, garnered the prestigious Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America for Best First Novel, and his most recent novel, The Devil's Company, depicts the birth of the modern corporation, the British East India Company. A graduate student at Columbia University in the 1990s, David was writing a dissertation on how modern notions of personal finance shape and are in turn shaped by the 18th century novel. Yet, with the fabulous success of his debut novel, conspiracy uh, paper that you saw earlier on the slide, he turned away from academic writing and devoted himself full-time to writing historical thrillers. His growing legion of fans on both sides of the Atlantic who admired his efforts in that vein and who have been taught by his more devilish characters to value self-interest highly are perversely gratified that David will forever be known as the best-selling novelist who is ABD at Columbia, all about the dissipation. <laughs> Members of our audience familiar with David's body of work, an impressive six novels published in just eight years' time, well know that embedded in the pages of his fiction is the dissertation he was writing and much, much more. In Conspiracy of Paper, we are first introduced to Benjamin Weaver, a Jew and former boxer who, far from being a perfect person, is nonetheless hired to investigate the corrupt financial markets of 18th century London. While tracking down felons and debtors in the city's teeming streets and taverns on behalf of aristocratic clients, Weaver comes a bit too close for comfort to difficult truths about not only the murder of his father, but also his uneasy relationship with his Jewish identity. David has now penned several installments of the Benjamin Weaver detective series, each as thrilling and suspenseful as the last. Critics uh, have praised the series as tremendously smart, assured, and entertaining, and evocative of an English history that you can happily get lost in for days. What reviewer Brian Kenny eloquently states about David's talent for relating urgent economic, political, and cultural problems of the past to the present in remarkably non-dogmatic ways in a conspiracy paper rings true as a comment on his entire oeuvre. Quote, although a financial boom fueled by a new economy or a personal struggle with ethnic identity may seem awfully contemporary, Liss keeps us firmly in another time. His writing crackles with period detail, yet the immense research never shows, unquote. Thus, I am thrilled that David has agreed to be with us in State College today to talk about a novel whose characters, plots, and themes resonate with those contained in the Benjamin Weaver novels, but which is not a part of that series. Set in 1790s Philadelphia, in western Pennsylvania, the Whiskey Rebels features risky financial schemes reminiscent of today's financial crisis. The opportunity for us to discuss David's novel is a truly fitting way to round out a fantastic menu of public lectures in this semester's Weiss Seminar focused on the topic, Philadelphia in the Age of Revolution. David, welcome. Thank you. Uh, my first question is, what provoked you to write this novel set in the United States rather than Europe, where all your earlier historical fiction is set? Uh, well, I think, you know, I think my, my impulse, for whatever reason, is, is always to, uh, to set my historical fiction in Europe. But uh, this novel began uh, actually came out of a personal interest, which was um, 
I, I began to feel that I didn't know very much about the origins of, of this country, and, and I, I thought it was something I ought to know about, that it was something that a citizen should know in some detail about how his own country came into being, and I only knew what details I remembered from public school. And uh, around the time I was having these feelings, uh, Joseph Ellis published his biography of George Washington, and I picked that up, and, and I became really fascinated with uh, just the kind of larger-than-life personalities of the founders. How, um, in grade school, they often come across as kind of stony lawgivers, as statues, uh, as these sort of uh, somehow less than and more than human figures. And uh, the more I read about the founders, the more I became uh, fascinated by how very human they were and how, how I became interested in their, in their uh, conflicts and their rivalries and their foibles. And uh, I still didn't think I was going to write a novel about the, this period. But when I was reading about Hamilton and the Panic of 1792 and the founding of the First Bank, it had enough in common with other things that I'd been interested in and subjects I'd written about before that I began to think, I'm not going to write a novel about this, but if I would, uh, how would I shape it? And after a certain point of, of thinking about how I wasn't going to write this novel, I, I, I realized that I was, in fact, going to write the novel. <laughs> um, so in, in the Weiss seminar, we've been pursuing a theme that was established in, in the opening lecture of the semester, namely we've been trying to refine the founding. Um, so as you proceeded with your research for the Whiskey Rebels, um, what about the early national period surprised you? You know, I, I think the thing that I found most surprising was the way in which so many of the public, the bitter public debates between uh, the Federalists and uh, the Jeffersonians so precisely mirror the, the public debates of today. That on the one hand, you have the, uh, the Jeffersonians are arguing that the, uh, what is today the conservative argument, which is um, government should be small, it should be driven by the people, the government should stay out of your business, and the Federalists were arguing that Things will be too chaotic if we do it that way, and then the government, the federal government, needs to have a firm and guiding hand in order to, to drive the country in the direction it needs to go. And it really struck me as kind of peculiarly American that some of the, the nature of this debate has not changed at all in the in the last uh, two hundred plus years. It's not the novel's full of anachronisms, but I'm wondering where do we see that kind of surprise registered in the novel? Those kinds of connections between today and then. Uh, I'm not sure I consciously registered any any parallels. Um, when I when I write historical fiction that I that I want to have some contact with, with the modern world, uh, I usually don't do it pointedly. I usually try and allow the similarities between what's going on today and what's going on in the past speak for themselves and not do it with a heavy hand. The the, the only exception I ever made to that rule was. Uh, in my most recent book, The Devil's Company, I have a, I have a character who, who uh, is a director of the East India Company and is an advocate for basically unregulated corporate power. And frequently when he speaks, I'm having him quote Ronald Reagan and a kind of eight-centuryized <laughs> version of Reagan. And, and that was, that, that's the cheekiest thing I've ever done in a book. But for the most part, I usually like the facts to, to stand for themselves. So. The novel, as most of you know who have read it, uh, features two narrators, one of whom is Joan Maycock, uh, who relocates with her husband to West, Western Pennsylvania. 
And there, they and their neighbors are victimized, right, by unscrupulous land speculator, speculators culminating in the murder of Jones' husband, who's a Revolutionary War veteran, um, who becomes connected to the whiskey trade while in Western Pennsylvania. Andrew's death spurs Jones to the plot, right, to overthrow uh, the nation's financial system, undermine Hamilton. Yet before she ever decides to orchestrate that conspiracy with her fellow whiskey rebels against Hamilton's Bank of the United States and other financial institutions, turns out she's an aspiring uh, novelist. Indeed, the last lines of the novel uh, are given over to Joan, and she's reading Maria Edgeworth's 18th century novel, The Lender, and Mark's quote, I thought, as I often did, that perhaps I should attempt once more to write a novel of my own, but I could not help but feel the novels had missed their chance. They were but silly things, and nothing I had to say would rightly belong in one, unquote. So to redirect Joan's final thoughts outward, it almost suggests that you missed your chance when you gave up academic writing for, for novel writing. Um, but to pose that question somewhat differently, during my introduction uh, of our first guest lecture, many of you recall, uh, noted early American historian Michael Zuckerman, I cited a passage from Almost Chosen People, oblique biographies in the American brain, in which Mike writes the following about his decision to abandon his ambition to become a novelist in favor of a historian. Quote, I felt a creative frenzy more compelling than any I had known in my writing, in writing a novella. I was discovering that I could seize and be seized by history as utterly as I could take hold of fiction, and that I could say in history most of what I wanted to say in fiction. Indeed, I was discovering that writing history was more challenging and more fun than writing novels. In my novellas, I drew on all I had known of the world, and this historical study of voting practices in 18th century Massachusetts as a graduate student, I had to learn more. I had to listen to voices and values that were not my own. It possessed an integrity and passion that required recognition if my research and writing were to be satisfying. So, it strikes me that you've chosen a career path that is almost the inverse uh, of Mike, and I wondered if, um, given that long buildup, if you could talk a little bit about how you characterize the relationship between, say, writing history and novel writing? Well, well, first of all, I think it's very clear that Zuckerman's problem is that he's trying to write novellas, and that's just too limiting. And he needs to push past page 150, and he might see things. Um, you know, and one... Let me write that down. I gotta go. <laughs> um, you know, there, there are lots of different ways to approach writing about the past or writing about subjects that interest you. Uh, and for me, I, I, I don't doubt for a second that the, 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 the course I've chosen is, is, is the better one for me. Um, you know, in part, I turned to, to turning my dissertation into a novel because I found the process of writing the dissertation frustrating. Now, people I know who finish their dissertation say, everybody gets that point, and then you realize that everything you've done is garbage, and you have to throw it away and start over again, and I simply just, you know, threw it away and started something else. But, um, you know, I, I don't think one is better than the other, or one is more valid than the other. Uh, I certainly couldn't do the work that I do without uh, the work of, of real historians who do real original work and put things together in a way that I, I simply don't have the skills to do myself. Um, you know, what I can do is I can take subjects that I think are interesting and, um, and I find important and I hope other people will find important and present them to uh, 
possibly a wider audience than academic historians might be able to find, or to uh, at least present them to an audience that would not normally gravitate toward academic writing. And so I, I really see the you know that I, I worked in collaboration with with historians rather as opposed to what historians do. I wonder in some ways when I think about that line that Mike talk Mike talks about that now he has to in, in writing history listen to the voices rather than rely on experience of history, whether you all aren't saying the same thing in yeah. some ways, right? That I think it's, it sounds like he wasn't writing historical fiction. No, exactly. and in <laughs> yeah. fact that's that's one of the things that struck me about that quote is. Um, you know, I, I, I do feel that's what I'm doing. That fiction doesn't have to be uh, self-absorbed and navel-gazing, and, and you, you know, you can write, you know, the, the, the novel about what your 14th summer was like, and you know, but but there are lots of other kinds of novels to write. You can do uh, the great thing about fiction is you can do whatever you want. You can tell any kind of story you want, and you can bring in as much or as little research as you like. Well, but you're doing some quite daring, I think. And you're writing. You're writing about economic history, which I think is a particular kind of challenge. Um, to some extent, I don't know about the rest of you, but it seems to me the thrilling effect of the whiskey revels as you read it depends on your being seduced as a reader by the art of hyperspeculation. That, in many ways, is the novel's object of critique. Um, so, in that regard, uh, <clears throat> while most reviews of the novel have been enthusiastic, and I can attest that I've read many, many reviews of it, and they're just adoring in praise of it. Uh, Walter Olson uh, seems to be kind of a curmudgeonly guy here at the Manhattan Institute in his New York Times review questions why the novel's action does not remain on the Western frontier with the actual whiskey rebels, uh, who he notes were mobs of, of disguised men disguised as women who threatened the pillaging of Pittsburgh. And follows instead what he terms your quote, bent for financial chicanery, a fascination which I doubt will be shared by most readers, with the arcana of bond bond issues, collateral, short selling, and discount rates, unquote. Okay, so let's let's bracket for the moment the merit or not of Olson's pointed critique. For you, what are the pleasures, I suppose, and dangers of writing historical fiction about urgent financial matters and moments in economic history? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bracket okay. this critique because I think it's important to point out that uh, the Manhattan Institute is a uh, fiscally conservative think tank dedicated to the idea that any restraints ever put on free markets anywhere, anytime, under any conditions are uh, to be resisted. Why do you think the New York Times brought him to do Because they were looking for fireworks. They wanted, you know, essentially they solicited, uh, you know, I've written several books in the past that were basically criticisms of, of uh, Unrestrained markets, and I think to ask somebody from the Manhattan Institute to review the book is is to dial up a uh, a fiery review, and you know their their job is to sell papers, and they don't care who gets hurt. That's capitalism in action. Um, but you know, in terms of, of what he's saying, uh, you know, one of the points of his review was that what people care about is the whiskey rebellion. Nobody cares about this financial scam, and uh, you know, I think it may be different here in in. Uh, in, in central Pennsylvania, you know, for most of the country, the Whiskey Rebellion is that moment in American history that everybody's heard of, but nobody knows what it is. Uh, so I don't think people are necessarily clamoring to read about the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, I, I find these, these, these 
pivotal moments in economic history fascinating, not just because they're historically important or because they're turning points, but because uh, I write fiction, and fiction is about characters, and characters want to accomplish things or trying to avoid things. And these pivotal financial moments are moments in which there's an incredible amount of power uh, and money at stake. And they're playing for incredibly high stakes. One, one of the things that fascinated me about this period that I tried to, to put in the novel, that I tried to make clear in the novel, is not only is there a lot of money at stake, but the, but the nation itself is in the balance. The people don't believe the nation is necessarily going to survive the next five or ten years. Um, and that big, a big financial hiccup could really mean the end of the United States as an experiment in, in representative democracy, which is you know, this, this incredible dream that's been around since the fall of the Roman Republic and has never been tried on this scale before. Uh, so there's, there, there are an incredible amount of urgent things that are, that are on the table at this moment in history that I, that I hoped would resonate with readers. And, uh, and I also just fundamentally disagree with, with, with Olson's supposition that some things are more interesting than others. You know, I always go back to the, uh, the, uh, the Alfred Hitchcock term, the, the MacGuffin, you know, the, which is a term he used in storytelling. And the MacGuffin is the thing that people care about, uh, that, that it doesn't matter what it is. If you know that somebody's trying to get the MacGuffin, and he's desperate to get the MacGuffin, his quest to get that thing becomes interesting because he cares about it. Once characters care about something, then it becomes interesting. Well, I think implicit, um, if not stated as delicately, you might have done it. Um, in Olson's critique, he returned for, to a moment that, that he, he suspects that most readers wouldn't be interested in the financial chicanery novel, which is wrong about the novels and its fourth printing, so it's obviously <laughs> speaking to some readers, right? Um, but still, I, I guess I wonder whether his critique of the novel's complex treatment of financial matters is in itself reflective on Olson's part, but of a wider ignorance, or I, I guess maybe disinterest might be the right word, on the part of readers today. Um, and if that's so, how from your fictional prism, rather than from the point of view of, say, again, those of you who have read the novel know this, the economic treatises that, like, Joan Maycott reads out in, in the wilderness, um, how, from that, how from that financial prism um, do you seek to address this problem in some ways of the miseducation of the public on financial matters? Well, I think, you know, I do think that's an interesting point, and it's an important one. And uh, when, I mean, when you think about our current financial crisis that we are in, uh, and how we got here, you know, there was an incredible amount of ignorance across the board uh, in terms of the, the Congress that, that simply chose not to regulate what was going on with a lot of the securities that were being traded on the supposition that these guys wouldn't do anything that was going to harm the economy because they are the economy, so surely they're the best stewards of it. Um, people within these banks themselves didn't understand the mortgage-backed securities and how they worked. Um, it seems there... You can't really separate high-stakes finance from gambling. You know, if you're at the craps table and you're rolling the dice and you want to win, the last thing you're going to do is start to calculate the odds of getting the role that you want. Um, what you're focused on is, is, is the money that's on the table and whether or not you're going to get it. You have to be in it to win it. And uh, I think that you know some of these things are bound together. That this this idea that uh, the, the the sort of you know 
uh, Adam Smith, uh, a Friedman argument that the, the market will always move in the most advantageous direction for everybody, requires a kind of ignorance of how markets actually work, and, and requires a kind of ignorance of how markets have historically worked. And that there is, I think, real value in trying to disseminate to a wider audience how markets work and how markets have worked and how these mistakes have been made in the past and how nobody seems to learn from them. And I'm not optimistic that, that I'm going to write some book and suddenly people will start learning and you're not going to make the same mistakes all over again because that's simply not how it works. But, you know, I like to try. And, um, you know, the, the, the idea that, that somehow finance is uninteresting, I, I, I just repeat because, as I said before, I think, you know, there, there are people playing for very high stakes and that's always interesting. Yeah, that seems right to me. You've also succeeded in reminding me why. Uh, as much as I love it, I've, I've ceased going to Vegas and playing blackjack, um, but now I feel extra guilty about having done that ever before. Um, but let's talk about one of the novel's many characters that really interests me. Um, he's Kyle Levine, or Lavien, I think. Lavien, right? I think the proper so. pronunciation. Um, so my students this semester in the Weiss seminar uh, read two plays. One by Jay Robinson called Yorker's Stratagem, which the public heard a little about in, in a lecture that I gave. And the other by Susanna Rosen called Slaves and Algiers, both early American plays set in the 1790s, so contemporaneous to the setting of the novel in that regard, uh, both Philadelphia-based playwrights. Um, and in those plays, we see agents of U.S. commerce, really Hamilton men, in, in the wider world, imperiled by double-dealing by like Shylock-like characters. Um, Yet, in Lavian, you challenge received representations of Jews in 18th century history and culture, uh, whether in this novel then or in your Benjamin Weaver novels. Uh, you've tried to redress anti-Semitic, I think, portrayals of the roles that uh, Jews played in the making of early modern history. And I wonder if you could talk about, a little bit about that. Well, originally, he was supposed to have a much larger role in the novel. Um, there, are, there are two kinds of fiction writers. You know, fiction writers, like everything else in the universe, can be divided into two kinds. There are putter-inners and taker-outers. Um, taker-outers are people who write long drafts, and then they go in and they have to figure out what they're going to remove. And putter-inners are people who write relatively spare first drafts, and then go in and flesh it out. And I'm, and I'm the second kind. I'm the, I'm the putter-inner. I write very spare first drafts. Um, a novel that will end up being around like four or 450 manuscript pages begins its life as a rough draft of about 150 to 200 pages. When I first started working on The Whiskey Rebels, it had three first-person narrators, not two, and one of them was, was Kyler Lavin. And, he, uh, and when I got about halfway through the rough draft and I had over 600 pages, I knew that this project was unworkable because it was going to be 1,200 pages in rough drafts, and that meant the final version was going to be about 2,000 pages. And I, I was not prepared to write that novel. Um, so I had to cut out his section. I think took in the war room and some of the conversations with you and your team. There's some slashing going on. I am my team. Um, <laughs> it was just me, uh, me and the cat. And, um, you know, and in his sections, I was writing a lot about the Jewish community in 18th century Philadelphia, and that was something I wanted to write about. And I just couldn't make it work uh, in terms of, of 
even even this, this this is the longest novel I've ever written. It was about six hundred manuscript pages, and it's really about a hundred pages more than I could keep in my head. Uh, you know, every time I would go through the novel and read a draft, things would happen that I have no recollection of having written. It was just it was just <laughs> oh wow, we did that. That's so cool. <laughs> um, but I am very interested uh, in, in my other books as well, uh, my other historical books as well, in in in, in the, the role of, of, of basically of Jewish identity in, in early modern and, and I guess we're past the 1750 line, so technically modern uh, Western history. Um, and and what I often like to do is to take characters and put them against type, and, and uh, you know he was a character who. In a much diminished role, I just want to agree with some of the richness that he would have had if I'd been able to, to write the, you know, other 800 pages of the book that I, I decided would be imprudent to write. Um, I wanted to, my final question was, it was about redressing stereotypes with another character, and, and here I'll give a shout out to you, Shirley, one of our great supporters of the Weiss Seminar, who asked a version last night of this question. Um, and it's about Ethan Saunders' slave, Leonidas. Um, one review that I read argues, uh, in ways I think, Shirley, that might have been implicit in, in the way you simply asked the question, uh, and I thought eloquently in the way you did it, which is um, the reviewer argued that perhaps the character is too romantically drawn, and the novelist choose, therefore, a more serious examination uh, of the plight of slaves and ex-slaves in the early national period. Um, so as Shirley asked last night, were there really slaves like that then? Um, what were your goals in uh, imagining such a character as Leonidas, and how did you intend for him to speak to slavery and the slavery question in 1790s America? Yeah, when I um, when I began doing my research on uh, life in, in late 18th century Philadelphia, I became very interested in the lives of slaves and former slaves in that city where um, slaves often lived apart from their owners. They often uh, uh, slaves and former slaves often had a degree of education that, that is not to be found in certainly in the South and even in many places in the North. And it, you know what I, what I really was thinking about were, were some of the ideological issues that were in the air at this moment and that were were in the book about the nature. What is the meaning of the revolution? What is the nature of this revolution? And when you look at anti-slavery, the tradition of anti-slavery literature in this country, you know, whether you're looking at you know, abolitionist tracts or slave narratives or, or, or something very famous like Uncle Tom's Cabin, they tend to make the argument that slavery is bad because look how badly slaves are treated. And it's almost as though uh, if the slaves were being treated well, it wouldn't be such a terrible thing. And what I really wanted to do was to look at it from another angle. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that, that slaves in the North, uh, especially in a city like Philadelphia, that slaves in the North had a much easier life than they did in the agricultural South, for the most part. But if somebody is educated and, and understands the nature and the meaning of the American Revolution, uh, and understands the, 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 the Enlightenment rhetoric that's being cast around to, to create this really unique moment in, in Western history, what does it mean to be told that you are not an equal participant in this incredible historical moment? And so, for, you know, for, with this character, what I really want to talk about was the uh, the ideological 
horror of slavery rather than the physical horror. Because I think once you take away all the physical horror, slavery is still bad. You know, it's, it's you know, it wasn't wrong for Frederick Douglass to be a slave just because he was treated horribly by his master. He was still a slave. And I think, so by taking this other angle, I really wanted to address um, you know, the, 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 the condition of slavery. And then somebody who could who could hate it, even though he had a relatively easy, easy life because he wanted to be a full participant in, in the American Revolution. Thank you uh, very much. And I know now, uh, as we turn things over, you have a very captive audience. This is an audience, unlike maybe some of the audiences that, that uh, you've had in talking about the novel, that has been studying the topic Philadelphia and the Asian Revolution now for a full semester and have been hearing and listening to scholars from multiple disciplines um, talk about the issue of slavery and other issues of commerce. Um, for them, your novel and this wonderful opportunity, and we thank you again for coming um, to share with us your thoughts on, on your, your text. Um, this, this culminating moment is this opportunity to talk with you about um, some of the issues and, and themes that they've been taking up in the context of those lectures now with with your um, wonderful novel as a vehicle for doing that. So if you'd be willing, we will pass the mic this way and allow our audience to pose some questions to you. A couple of quick announcements um, before I do that. David has to catch a flight at 4.30. So we're gonna, he and I are gonna have to duck out. Uh, there's a lot of ducking out in the whiskey roll, so we'll try and do <laughs> under the door to slip out. Um, and, and get him to the airport so he won't miss his flight. So we'll, we'll end 10 minutes early, but that's okay because Linda Woodbridge is gonna make an announcement about the upcoming WISE seminars uh, for next year. And Mark Ticone, director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities also has a, an announcement to make. And then my wonderful assistant, Dustin Kennedy, and I hope you all will uh, give him a, a pat on the back. He's just finished four grueling days of taking his comprehensive exams, literally to this morning, finished his final one, which are three or four hour day exams each day of every day of the week here, nothing until today. Uh, you know, I'm a little upset you don't look more disheveled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure my questions were challenging. <laughs> um, Wait, so, so oral exams over, are over multiple days? Here? They're not oral, they're written. Okay. So he's writing, yeah, he's writing a series of responses that are, you know, he gets three or four hours and we deprive him of water and air and, and, and just pass him so, yeah. I, I think his, his, his national attitude indicates they're not tough enough. That's it. <laughs> um, we might have to resort to eye Because of where the novel is kind of a frightening technique and tactic uh, employed. Um, so that's what's going to happen at the end. And then if, if those of you, especially in the public, because members of my class, have been able to fill out an evaluation, but we would really love to get some of your feedback on what parts of the, you know, the seminar or the public lectures aspect of it has have you liked, and, and the other questions if you have response to those, we would appreciate that. And, and Dustin will collect those at the end on your way out. So let me turn things over, and, and we'll do it in that democratic way we've been doing this for next year. Well, I guess raising hands is not unbridled democracy, but uh, I'll move around the room and try and get to as many questions as we can. As we know from, from, from Hamilton, it's a thin line between democracy and anarchy. Yeah, that's right. That's why we have a Republican form of government. It's not a pure democracy here. Um, okay, yeah, Dylan, Dylan's one of my students. Hi, thank you. Um, 
speaking about Hamilton, um, and uh, some of the other sort of more famous characters in the book, um, I'm especially speaking of Burr here, um, you portray them in a unique light a lot of the time. Um, Burr is shown as, as, as sort of a, a good guy who ends up getting, in the very end of the book, getting duped into killing Alexander Hamilton. Um, I wondered, with Hamilton and with Burr and with you know, Washington, um, how, um, how, how much of their um, character was your thoughts on how your narrators would view them, and how much is your perception of how they actually were looking back? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. Um, and uh, people always say that, but I do think it's a really good question. Um, but especially with Hamilton, I really did, because I, I, I am kind of a fan of Hamilton. I like him a lot. I think he's a really smart, interesting guy. Uh, and he was somebody who uh, was much despised in his own time. And I really wanted to show him as the other characters saw him. Uh, I wanted as much of, of, of Hamilton as he was to come across in those scenes, and certainly in the scenes in which he's interacting with Ethan Saunders. After after a while, Saunders begins to see that he's not he's not the jerk that Saunders has always believed him to be. Um, but it was very important for me to to set these characters in the moment that they inhabited. And so when you talk about Burr, Burr was a likable, affable guy. Um, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't yet known for all the kind of dubious things he was, he was later going to do. And it always seemed to me a kind of uh, cheesy historical writing to, to make people, uh, to portray people as their lives building up to these moments that later become famous. That I think, um, you know, the, the things that he did were, you know, came from his personality, but I think that, you know, he was also very well-liked. He was an affable guy. He was somebody you would want to sit down in the, in the owl house and have a beer with. And I, and I tried to write these characters as they, as I imagine they might have seemed at the moment. And uh, somebody meeting Burr wouldn't say, you know what, I bet this guy's going to be involved in several major scandals. So, you know, I don't think you would have come across that way. at the moment where Phineas comes and uh, he's the one who actually kills Colonel Trindall, and then he has that conversation with Joe Makai. I was wondering if you thought of that as like a redemptive moment for Phineas. Uh, yeah, you know, and you know, he's one of the things I really wanted to accomplish in those chapters was, and I think you know, with Phineas, it's it's at its most obvious, which is the. The, the toll that living on the Western frontier takes on people. And I think it is a redemptive moment for him, but it's, but you know, he, he only redeems himself through doing terrible things. And he's, you know, I think he's somebody who's so damaged that even, uh, for, for him, redemption is always going to be slightly skewed, that he's, uh, you know, his, his life has been marked by all this terrible and, and, and frequently hypocritical violence. And there is no, uh, there is no way out for him, and it would be, I think, overly romantic to imagine that he can 
he would be able to somehow shrug off all the all the terrible things he's been forced to endure and do throughout his life. So it's a gesture toward that, but I wanted it to be painted as a, as a way of showing that um, he's not a character with with, with modern uh, therapy options. He's, you know, he's pretty much he's he's a product of his environment. This is probably a rather trite question, but I'm curious as to how you came to the title. And to set up my question, I have to admit, I understand a little bit of Olson's criticism because I am from the heart of the Whiskey Rebellion country, and when I picked up the novel, oh, I'm going to read about our glorious participation in the beginning of the um, nation, and having been a little upset with my husband for always looking at the financial reports and he has all these talking heads on TV. I would not have picked up a novel that I uh, realized had so much of this monetary background. But once I realized they were going to leave Western Pennsylvania and go back, back to Philadelphia, I kept with it and I really enjoyed it. But you know, the title, uh, and again, it comes from my mindset, being in the heart of the Whiskey Rebellion country. So I'm very curious how that popped out. Well, I'm very disappointed with you for seeing the Whiskey Rebellion as being isolated in this particular moment in 1794. Well, you have to understand, where we live, this is taught to the kids at school, it's the glorious moment. In which nothing happened. Right. <laughs> but we have so little to, you know, that have happened right. in our backyard, so it's... It's a big focus right there in Western Pennsylvania. Well, I, I was really interested in... Do you feel the rebellion? <laughs> I was really interested in, in, in you know, the larger moment of uh, the, the, these people who were distilling whiskey and the whiskey tax and, and the ignorance of, uh, of, of, of Hamilton and the Congress and not understanding the impacts that this tax was going to have on people who were so far away from uh, the capital. And uh, I personally uh, like American whiskey much better than I like foreign whiskey. So, uh, so I, I actually, at one point, I, I thought I was going to try to make my own whiskey and, 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 and hand it out on uh, a book tour. Um, and it turns out making your own whiskey is, is illegal, but that didn't, that didn't uh, deter me because I figured the worst thing that could happen is I get caught and get arrested and it would be great publicity for the book. <laughs> but making your own still turned out to be really hard. It involves soldering things and I don't do that. But um, The maturing in the barrels doesn't seem particularly easy either, does you know, in terms of where the title came from, titles always come very late for me. I'm not somebody, you know, not somebody who, who says, oh, this is the book I want to write, this is what's going to be called. Uh, there's usually a moment around the time I'm about to hand in the manuscript where I think I really need to come up with the title for this novel. Um, and, you know, at some point in, in, in the way, I thought, you know, oh, having a commodity in the title is always a, always a good move. So um, for purely... Uh, capitalist marketing reasons, I decided that we focus on on this commodity, thinking, you know, uh, it will make a good Father's Day gift with a title like this. <laughs> it wasn't quite that crass, but it seemed like a good catchy title. That's all you want. You know, I don't. I I wanted to call my first book the Conspiracy of Paper. I wanted to name it after a uh, a pamphlet 
I read about uh, the financial industry in the 18th century. I want to call it The Villainy of Stock Jobbers Detected. And I thought this was the greatest title. And then when I told my editor this, she was, he was going to flip. And uh, what a great title it was. And it turns out I was mistaken. So I, so I came up with this title, and everyone liked it, and it was good enough for me. Very stupid question. Well, I think you need to wait for the mic. Well, hang on, please. Very stupid question from somebody that never knew any history. Is Dewar, or how do you say Dewar, Dewar a real person? Yes. Or was he? Yes, Dewar was a real person. Um, He was definitely one of the figures that most fascinated me from the period because he starts out as kind of a good guy in his career where he really... Um, he, he played an important role in helping to finance the Continental Army. And uh, then he, he really found himself in a position of power and influence and began to take advantage of it. And I really loved uh, how when he was Hamilton's assistant, he, would, he was essentially engaged in insider trading. He would take everything he learned at the office that day and then go and make trades based on what he knew Hamilton was planning to do. And, uh, you know, he really seems like one of those people who is uh, central to the history of American finance, who people don't know that these guys have been around forever. You can't, you know, he's really one of those villains I wish have made up, but, uh, but I'm glad he existed. <laughs> talking on Tuesday about whether or not we thought Joan Maycott was a patriot or a traitor to her country. And since you made her up, I'm just wondering what you <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm of this school that once, once the book is published, I have no longer any, any right to make declarations based uh, about what, what's in it that's that aren't in it. You know, do you remember a couple of years ago when J.K. Rowling announced that, that Dumbledore was gay? And I thought, you can't do that. It's not in the book. Therefore, uh, it's not true. Um, I, but you know, I, think, I think, you know, based on, on what is in the novel, I think she, she's unambiguously patriotic. I think uh, the decisions she makes and the positions she takes are on the wrong side of history. But there are, she represents a, what was at the time a significant voice in the American, uh, in, in the American Republic that the Constitution and the federal government had betrayed the principles of the revolution and that it was patriotic to, to push back against this, these, these, this terrible, uh, uh, these, these terrible steps that had, that had been taken that took power away from, uh, from, from people and put it in the hands of a federal government that was creating a tyrant that was no better than the one they'd overthrown in, in London. Uh, so I think her motivation is frequently ideological. She, what she believes that what she's doing is in the best interests of, of the revolution and the country for which she fought, if not the one she isn't currently living. And I think uh, you know, it's important to, to get that idea out there. You know, the, the, one, the, the moment that I really liked writing about her is when she talks about, and I think, and I think this is really relevant for, for today, that the little compromises that, that they've made 
in order to make the country work. So, okay, you're not, you're going to wink at slavery. You're not going to worry about slavery because you need to keep the country together. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to ignore all these other things because we need to keep the country together. Then, at what point, uh, what's the point of keeping it together if it betrays every everything you wanted to, to build in the first place? It's sort of like the the healthcare bill. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I really liked your book. That's my favorite book that we read in this class. But um, I was rereading parts of it, and I, was, I found that I kept on going to parts where Ethan Saunders was in it because I really liked a lot of his dialogue. I thought it was really funny. So I'm just interested in you as a writer, less than um, as a historian. Did you have a character that you liked writing more than any other one? Um, you know, Saunders was a really fun character to write. I liked, I, I like writing about difficult characters, characters who are uh, mostly on the right side, but you know, are maybe a little morally lax or give in to their own worst selves. Um, but I also, uh, and he was an easier character for me to write than John Maycott. John Maycott was really the first time I tried to write uh, sustained female protagonist over over quite so many pages, and so that was a challenge, and that was something that I really had to work at and, and, and second guess. And so I was very happy with how it came out at the end. And I, so um, they're all they're all different experiences, and, and, and you you know some are easier to do than others, but but the easier ones aren't necessarily the most satisfying ones. Hi, Hi. I just have a question for you about actually Western sources. There's actually quite a lot. Um, this is the, you know, when I, I, I wrote a, my second novel is uh, called The Coffee Trader. It was about commodities trading in 17th century Amsterdam. If that's a subject on which you wish to become an expert, you can do this fairly easily. There's just not that much material out there to master. Um, if you want to read about Western Pennsylvania in the 18th century, that, there, there, you have plenty of resources. and, and, and uh, you know, you don't need to worry about running out. There are um, a lot of, of journals and diaries. There's a lot of primary material you can read. Uh, there's tons of secondary material. Uh, I went out. I went out to uh, uh, Pittsburgh and I did. Uh, I did work in the archives. I, you know, I, um, I read uh, one of the, one of the minor characters in the novel is uh, Hugh Henry Brackenridge, who's a big name out there, and I, I read some of his writing, including. Some of, I think, that's not all of his novel, Modern Chivalry. I would not, I would not inflict the whole thing on anyone. Um, uh, so you know, and and uh, the it, it wasn't it wasn't hard to find things. It really uh, what what's hard in something like that is is knowing when to stop when you've read enough. To, and and my my feeling is uh, I don't like to get. Bogged down with too much research, and my uh, one of my general rules is that I need to do enough research so that I, what I don't know is no longer getting in the way of the story I want to tell. And once I feel like I have enough to tell the story I want to tell, is when I usually start winding things up. 
My assistant, Tim Gass, I believe this first question of the semester. Uh, it's a momentous moment. It's a good one. This, is this payback time? I just, uh, I was quite taken with the moment when some of the characters started to exhibit sort of uh, a feeling of history themselves for what was at stake with the collapse of the bank and what that might entail for the nation. And they conjured uh, the South Sea bubble and the Mississippi bubble in the British and French systems and uh, remarked um, sort of as if it was common knowledge between the two. And these are exceptional, exceptionally informed characters, of course, but uh, they, they were very offhand in saying that the South Sea bubble uh, was something that the British economy was able to, to sustain itself through because it had been established. And then the, the Mississippi Valley bubble set the, the, the French nation back quite a bit economically. And so those are both bubbles that are happening very far away from the, uh, the economic centers where the trading is going on. And given that these are uh, sailing days uh, and that the South Sea bubbles is in territory that was quite speculative and really very fictional and around the, the horn and that travel back and forth was much more difficult than the travel between Philadelphia and New York that you depict in uh, uh, the Whiskey Rebels. I was wondering what, what role the distance and colonialism played in relation to economics and economic bubbles and how, uh, say, European investment in the American system was also a factor uh, in whether or not um, uh, the U.S. system would succeed in this, in this moment. It's a, it's a good question, and, and, and I'll be honest and say there's one to which I have not given a great deal of thought. Um, I was really more interested in uh, the rhetoric of the time, which is about what this, what effect this banking system is going to have on the American landscape. And so, for example, you have um, Jefferson and, and, and the Virginia faction worried that the, the bank is going to accrue too much power in the North. Um, I understand that uh, certainly by the end of the 18th century, you, you had a great deal more um, investment from Europe in in the New Republic. Uh, at this point, in, in 1792, in early 1792, I, I, I don't know that there was a great deal of European money involved in, in, in bank speculation in, in the US, but I could be mistaken. I was going to come back, uh, David, to um, the question that our audience member here asked, a good question about uh, why the title of Whiskey Rebels is Whiskey Rebels. Um, and you talk about how your husband uh, <laughs> tends to read lots of uh, financial news and watch financial news programs. Um, I'm wondering, you know, as I suggested in one of the questions I asked, you're, you're, you're trying to use fiction in a way to talk about economics um, to, to provide for your audience a different way, which you ultimately acknowledge you found quite interesting, right, um, to cultivate as here's a, here's a living example of the success of what you're doing, a, a, a different kind of audience who could become engaged with and interested in economics. Because it seems to me that's 
critical because it, I think our democracy depends on educating a public in, in a variety of different ways and creating different kinds of audiences about financial matters. So I wonder if beyond the, the hardcore financial news programs on MSNBC and Wall Street Journal pieces and so on, are there others out there, whether it be fellow novelists or other um, voices in, in cult, producing cultural, other kinds of culture forms that, in your estimation, are cultivating um, an audience in the ways that you are doing, that in ways that you think are productive in trying to inform the wider public about difficult financial matters that, you know, aren't, aren't the ways they're being presented today aren't obviously reaching. Um, some of the audience that your books has succeeded in reaching? Well, well there's no doubt that the, the bulk of the financial media coverage is, uh, and especially during the boom, uh, it was celebratory. And that nobody wanted to step forward and say, you know, uh, you know these, these things are going to, uh, this, this can't be sustained, this can't last, there's going to be a collapse, there's going to be a downturn, even though uh, all the indicators were exactly that, that the system was, it, it was, was simply too fragile for it to continue to, to continue to build. I mean, I think there are plenty of, you know, there, uh, there's a diversification of voices that exist on, on the internet, and there are plenty of, of smart people who write smart things uh, on, on various websites that will talk about uh, how finance works and why it works. Um, but... In terms of mainstream media, it's um, mainstream media is, is driven by what is going to sell advertising time, and that's it. Um, you're not going to sell as much advertising time on your business news network if during a boom you keep telling everybody that they're about to be wiped out. People are going to turn the channel. They don't want to hear that. People like to be terrified about things like swine flu, but they don't like to be terrified about things like money. Um, so, so the stuff is out there, but you really do have to seek it out. And, and it's also a matter of how information is received. You know, a significant number of, of people I receive email from, uh, it's anecdotal, so I don't know what percentage of my readers period it is, but the number of people I receive emails from are people who work on Wall Street and who, people who you know, uh, trade in, 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 in toxic assets and, you know, they'll read my book, oh, I loved your book, and they don't seem to recognize that, that, they, that, that this book is, is being critical of people like them. They, they, they just kind of, oh, it's so rare to read a good book about financial markets, you know, so, so people have to be receptive, I think, and uh, there may not be uh, a built-in ready audience for hard truths about finance. Is there another novelist? that you enjoy and appreciate the way in which they engage economic matters, um, financial issues? Um, I'm not sure that I can think of anyone who does it consistently. Uh, Ian Parrish, uh, who's a novelist, and I wrote a book called Stone's Fall uh, this year that's about um, financial markets at the turn of the 20th century that I thought was quite good. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, I'm the only one I, I can think of off the top of my head who's keeps flying this particular course. <laughs> Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you would ever consider having the Whiskey Rebels turn into a film later on. If it were up to me, sure, I'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was, when I was reading it, I would think that it would make an awesome film. Um, 
Well, thank you. And if you've got the uh, <laughs> 60 or $70 million yeah. in budget, I'm happy to talk to you. Uh, right now, it's a terrible climate in general for um, book adaptations to film. I actually don't believe that books make good source material for films anyhow. This doesn't keep, this does not mean would prevent me from trying to sell my books made into movies. Um, I'm just saying that you know you can count on your fingers the number of good movies that were based on books. Um, you know the, the option is out right now with somebody, uh, but the film industry is going through hard times like everyone else, and, and, and the reality is that a historical project adds approximately a third to a film's budget, and uh, so historical projects are a very tough sell. When I read the book, I have to admit I definitely um, was more sympathetic towards Saunders and more attempt to succeed and wanted to make up fail. <laughs> and I thought she was too much of an idealist and her ideals wouldn't, she wasn't realistic enough and they would end up doing more destruction than they would helping anything. But um, when we had our class discussion, um, I felt that I saw a lot of my classmates felt the opposite way and were more sympathetic towards Maycott, and then I started to think about it more, and then was confused, <laughs> I didn't know exactly where I felt, and a lot of times there, there's points in the novel where they're completely on opposite sides, and then there's points where they're together. So I was wondering if you did that to like show that these two opposite sides, like the Federalist, Anti-Federalist side, are actually very similar, these two sides that completely divide the nation, or you wanted us to kind of favor one over the other? Um, yeah, that's a good question. No, I, I definitely did not want to say that the Federalist and Anti-Federalist sides were, 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 were in any way equivalent. Um, setting ideology aside, I, I just think the Federalists were nicer people. Um, I, over the course of researching this novel, I really came to just dislike Jefferson as a person immensely. Um, in, in terms of what I wanted from, from, from readers, uh, I think your, your ultimate state of confusion is really what I was aiming for. That I, wanted, I, wanted, I wanted it to be really unclear. Um, that they, they, you know, every, you know, most of the, the major figures in this novel are, are acting on good faith trying to, to do things that they think ought to be done, or, or at least, uh, you know, they believe in the positions that they, that they have, and, and that, you know, I wanted to suggest that there, there, there wasn't one destiny in which, you know, that the, the way in which America went wasn't the only way it could have gone or should have gone, and that um, resisting the status quo in 1792 was not, as, as we talked about before, was not necessarily unpatriotic, that it was a defensible position, and that uh, even though Joan uh, does things that, that seem like they're maybe not so nice, that her position is a, is a valid one, and, and, it's, and, and I want her to be hard to dismiss, and I really wanted it to be the kind of novel where at certain points the reader isn't sure who they're rooting for, even though, of course, you know, you know, the, the nation is not going to be destroyed in the panic of 1792. In our final moments, so if you have a question too, this is the time to get final moments with Dave. Just a real quick question. So, was your decision not to include Jefferson as a character in the book based on 
feelings that you just couldn't do it fairly, or <laughs> what was that? No, no, the, the sections I had with Jefferson that uh, he really comes across as a weasel, and that's and that's what I wanted to do. I, it's just that I realized that I could cut 150 pages and not significantly affect the uh, the, the major uh, uh, moments of the novel, and um, and so I did that because I needed to cut some pages. Before you guys duck out, could I ask everyone to join me in thanking and congratulating uh, Sean for a wonderful wise seminar? I have to thank all of you. I mean, we've had a wonderful participation by our public audience. My students have been great uh, in the support of Mar and Rob and the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, Linda. Um, it's been a, I said at the outset that this was going to be an amazing opportunity to my students. I may never have an opportunity to teach a course like this, but it has been well, well worth it. And what a, what a way to end it uh, with having somebody like David come here to talk to us to, to put it. Make it all make sense and then confuse us again. That's the sense. So, David, thank you for, for coming. I'm going uh, to turn things over to Linda, who's going to have a couple of announcements about next year's White Seminar, and then Mark Tony will have announcements made. And if you can finish up your evaluation forms, Dustin will be collecting those. Thank you again. I'd just like to tell you a little bit about next year. Uh, we are going to have um, a seminar in the spring semester. That is 2011. Uh, it's going to be called The Consuming Child. The understanding of consumption, children's culture, and childhood since the 18th century. And let me just read you a little bit from the proposal that was given me by the three um, teachers who are going to teach this. Well, one is a historian, one is in education and learning studies, and one is in education. Uh, they described the course this way. Commercial children's culture, books, toys, and media emerged in the 18th century along with new ideas about understanding, raising, and being a child. Literature and even playthings began to shift from instruction to delight. With the emergence of modern educational and child-rearing philosophies, as well as new commercial ways of responding to and creating desire. Although ingenious marketing is associated with the present day, cultural artifacts have never existed in isolation from commercial production practices. John Newberry, considered the first viable children's publisher in England, sold tie-in toys for his pretty little pocketbook, using the persona of Jack the Giant Killer to sell directly to his boy and girl readers, and so forth. Uh, I'd also like to announce that next year, for the first time, we're going to have two white seminars, one in the fall and one in the spring. And the one that is in the fall is not quite so tightly uh, organized yet as this one. And it is going to be, in general, about radical innovation in the arts. Uh, returning to the Renaissance and early modern period, 16th, 17th, and 18th century, instructors, backed by popular demand, will be Marika Takami, Charles Houghton, and me. We hope to see you all again. Thank you again for being such a great audience for this wide seminar, and we hope to see you all next year. Good.
the arts and humanities. So I wanted to thank Sean, but he has left us. I will do that later. Um, obviously, this has been a wonderful seminar. Um, I also want to thank all of you audience members and students in the seminar for uh, coming throughout the semester. And I especially want to thank Linda Woodbridge for uh, continuing this wonderful partnership between the Institute and the WISE seminars. It's been really a terrific uh, series of seminars. This is now the third um, seminar that has been linked to the Moments of Change initiative through the Institute. And it's been really uh, very exciting and a win-win for everyone. Uh, thank you also to um, Rob Lyle, the Assistant Director of the Institute, for all of the support that he has provided over the course of this uh, WISE seminar and so many of the other events uh, this uh, fall. I also want to remind you that even though the public lectures for this WISE seminar this fall are concluded as of today, we have many more events in store in the spring semester uh, as part of the Institute's Moments of Change initiative. And um, I'm sure that all of you will now have the brochure that has the listing of all of the events. Um, but just to remind you that, for example, beginning on January 27th, we will have uh, the first of a series of five salons. These will be uh, informal evenings of uh, discussion, music, um, conversation, uh, on the different topics, and they will be again in the evenings at the uh, Lindley Mine Inn in one of the lounges there. We'll kind of set up the room to resemble what a living room would have looked like in the late 18th century. Uh, obviously, as you know, the Moments of Change theme for this year will continue to be in the spring 1776 to 1801. So, uh, we also have many concerts in. Uh, um, in store um, that are going to be offered beginning in January. Just to mention one, uh, a lavish full production of Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, which will be in March at the uh, State Theater downtown. Um, but also concerts of uh, music by Beethoven and Haydn and other contemporary composers from the late 18th century. Um, so I will stop there. I just wanted you to remember that we have heard so many wonderful topics, but there will be other opportunities to learn about the late 18th century, uh, this wonderful, very rich period of transformation in world culture, not just in the US, but in other countries of the world. So thank you again to everyone, and happy holidays to everyone, and I will be seeing you in January.